Okay, so friends, if you've been with us for the past few Sundays, then uh, you know that we have been going through the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and today we finally arrived in Luke chapter 2, where we see the event of Jesus' birth itself, okay? And usually, at least for me, when I hear the story of Jesus' birth, I think Christmas, you know, swaddled baby Jesus, and the theme that usually comes to mind, at least for me, which character of God usually appears in people's minds during the season, it's usually God's love, right? That's usually the character of God that comes out in the season, which isn't wrong. Christmas, the birth of Christ, is all about God's love. But in our particular passage today, the way Luke writes about the birth of Jesus here you'll see that it's blaringly obvious the main theme that Luke had in mind in regards to Jesus' birth wasn't actually God's love. It's actually all about God's power. For Luke, the birth of Christ, it's all about God's power. And this is interesting. Why? Because many gods and kings throughout the ages, right, they tell stories about their power. They show off just how powerful they are. And they write about their power. That's, that's not unique. But what's different about the God of the Bible, Luke's saying here, is that he's the only God who chose to display his power through a swaddled infant. The only one. He's the only God who chose to win his battles and show off his might through poverty and weakness. Now let that sink in just for a second. And I don't think you even need to be Christian to understand how beautiful this is. Because there's just something right, isn't there, about mighty meekness, about powerful powerlessness, about victorious humility, about a conquering infant. There is. And you know why there is? Because our hearts can sense that if this is how God displays his power, and win his battles through meekness, through powerlessness, through loneliness, then there must still be real hope there, isn't there, in my own seasons of weakness and powerlessness and loneliness. If God wins his battle through a fragile infant, then there must be real hope then that remains in my own seasons of fragility. And the question Luke is posing for us here is do you believe that? Do you have the eyes of faith to see God's hope in your lowest state? Or, you could say, do you have the eyes to see God in that dark manger? Divine power amidst the dusty glooms of life. Everything depends on whether or not you have those eyes that see. Because if you don't have them, Luke's saying here, if you don't have them, you'll never understand what Christmas is about you'll never be right with God, ever. And you'll never have lasting hope. So it's pretty important that we have these set of eyes that see, and how can you tell whether or not you have them? Well, let's dive in, take a closer look at Luke's account of Jesus' birth story today, taken from Luke chapter two, verse one to 21. This is the word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went from, up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was, one of, he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, that they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And when they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Thus says the Lord. Okay. If you have eyes that truly see, Luke's saying here, you'll see at least these three things in the Christmas story. These three things that isn't immediately obvious, but, but visible for all who have these eyes that see. What three things? You'll see hidden power. You'll see a swaddled glory and you'll see a newfound treasure. Hidden power, swaddled glory, newfound treasure. Let's start with the first point. You'll see hidden power. So before I start on this point, I do want to explain what I mean by hidden power. Well, let's define hidden power by comparing it against its opposite, which is direct power. What's direct power? God's direct power is the expectation that we often have for God to swoop down and sort of directly destroy all the evil forces in our lives in order to give us joy, right? We expect for God to do that. Now, in this passage, what we see is not this kind of direct power from God, but what we see rather is hidden power. His hidden power is his ability not to just swoop down and directly destroy evil, but it's his ability to use and manipulate evil for his own agenda, Okay, that's what we see in this passage. Where do we see it? In verses one to six. How so? Okay. Do you remember, long time ago in the Old Testament, it was already promised that the Messiah, the Savior, was gonna be born, where? In Bethlehem, right? That was specifically promised in Micah chapter five, verse two. Check it out for yourself later. And then you fast forward a few years later, to our passage today, lo and behold, it happened. You look at verse four, Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem, promise fulfilled. 
But notice how this whole thing came about. And this is why Luke put all the details in verses 1 to 6 together. This is where you'll see God's hidden power. Look at the beginning of verse 4 again. At the time, Joseph and Mary, they weren't actually living in Bethlehem, were they? No. Where were they living at? Look at verse 4. They were living in a city called Galilee. Right. But for some reason, right before Mary gave birth to Jesus, they decided to travel to Bethlehem, which would have been like 120 kilometers while Mary was on her last trimester, why? So that they can fulfill the Micah 5 prophecy and make sure that Jesus is born in Bethlehem as the prophecy said? No. That was probably the farthest thing away from their minds. At least the text doesn't indicate that at all. They went to Bethlehem, verses 1 to 3 says, because Caesar Augustus mandated all of the Jews in the Roman Empire at the time to do what? To register themselves in their hometowns. Why? For tax purposes. See, the Roman Empire at the time was getting bigger and bigger, and they had a hard time keeping track of who's paying taxes and who's not paying taxes. So, in order to keep better track, Caesar Augustus, alongside another particularly managerial-type governor named Quirinius, verse 2 says, made a law that mandated all the Jewish people in their territory to go back to their hometowns and register as taxpayers there. And if you read historical records, it'll affirm that the census actually was placed by Caesar Augustus in his second term in office. The question is, why was the SOP for them to go back to their hometowns? Why not just register in the place that they were currently residing in, which for Joseph and Mary would have been Galilee? Because Augustus and Quirinius wanted to make this tax law as acceptable as possible to the Jewish people. So what they did is they wanted to copy what King David did in 2 Samuel chapter 24 a long time ago. If you check out 2 Samuel chapter 24, you'll see that a long, long time ago, King David already made a census like this. He too made all the Jews go back to their hometowns and register for tax and also military purposes. So Augustus and Quirinius, being the strategic people that they are, thought to themselves, hmm, you know what? Let's do it that way again. Let's, let's make them go back to the hometowns like David did because it'll feel more familiar, more customary, perhaps even religious to these Jewish people. And this way, perhaps this very controversial new tax law will get less pushback. That's why they did it. The fulfillment of Micah chapter 5 verse 2 was the furthest thing away from Augustus and Curinus's mind. They did not care at all about that prophecy. They did not care at all about God's will. They just wanted to squeeze more tax money out of the colonized people they're currently oppressing. But do you see God's hidden power here? The most powerful and advanced military force in the world at the time put their two most educated people in a think tank to come up with the most strategic plan to accomplish their evil, oppressive agenda. And without knowing it, they ended up doing what? They ended up accomplishing whose agenda? God's agenda. For the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem, according to promise in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Look, if I can get what I want through my own strategies... That's power, okay. 
But if I can get what I want through my enemy's strategies, you know what that is? That's unquestionable power. That is ultimate sovereign might, as hidden as it might be. God's displaying here in the birth of Christ just how powerful he is. And it's amazing, isn't it? It is. But it's also, oh, so very frustrating as well. Isn't it? It is. Why? Because it's not direct power. It doesn't give us immediate relief from our problems. Joseph and Mary still have to travel 120 kilometers while Mary was pregnant. They couldn't reimburse the travel expenses. They have to give birth in a manger, verse 7 says, and they probably still ended up paying the tax that was unjust to begin with. And it's like, some power you got there, God, you know, thanks a lot. At the end of the day, I still got plenty of problems in my life. But see, one of the proofs that you have eyes to see is that God's hidden power will somewhat still be visible to you or at least still be in the periphery of your vision even amidst your earthly problems. And you know, you know what this will do? This will turn you into a joyful person. Look, if all God does in your life is directly swoop in and delete all of your problems away, you'll have joy, sure, but only when you're problem-free. But if God can somehow convince you that his hidden power is actively hovering over your life, just like it was actively hovering over Joseph and Mary's life here amidst their unjust suffering, then you know what that'll do? It'll give you something more than just joy. It'll turn you into a joyful person. And those are two very different things, you know. The first gives you joy only when you're problem-free. The latter sustains your joy even amidst a world of trouble. One of the proofs that you have eyes that truly see, Luke's saying here, is that you'll be the kind of person who has joy amidst a world of trouble because you have the eyes to see God's hidden power through it all. Do you have that? Which are also the kind of eyes you need, Luke continues to say, to see God's hidden glory within the person of Jesus, which brings us to our second point. Those eyes will show you a swaddled glory. Now, I find this interesting. After all this buildup in verses one to six, right, about God, how God's hidden power can utilize evil and fulfill his goodwill and made a promise that was promised thousands of years ago come true. The climactic result of all of that, which is the birth of the Messiah in verse 7, seemed to be described here in a very anticlimactic way. Look at verse 7 again. After all this drama, in verse 7, Luke just simply states, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there is no place for them in the inn. And that's it. The verse 8 moves on to a different scene. It's like all that for one verse, you know, one verse that is void of grandeur, set in a manger, described in the most stale manner. It's so anticlimactic. But if you have eyes to see, Luke's trying to say here, 
just as you'll be able to see God's hidden power cloaked behind your sad circumstances, you'll also be able to see God's true glory cloaked within the swaddled infant. You will. Where in the passage do we see that? Let's continue on to verse 8. We see here in verse 8, shepherds tending the sheep in the dark of night, where suddenly the bright glory of the Lord shone around them, and angels were singing over this child's birth. And what were these angels singing about? Well, they're singing about who this child really was. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. Fear not, the angel said, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. And here comes the big claim. Who is Christ, what? The Lord. This frail infant is Christ, the Lord. Which Lord? The Lord. If you have eyes that truly see, Luke's saying here, then what you'll see, listen, what you'll see is not a God who's interested in deleting all the evils of life so that you might escape suffering. No, no. You know what you'll see? Who you'll see is a God who's more interested in using all the evils of life so that he can come to you as a fellow sufferer. That's who you'll see. But why, you ask? Why would would he go through all that trouble? Why doesn't he just delete my problems away, easy, done, job fulfilled? Well, Luke continues to explain in verse 9, because we are the problem. He can't just come and delete all my problems because I am the problem. See, why is it you think that the shepherds were afraid here when they saw the bright light of God's glory in verse 9? Hmm? Well, because angels suddenly decided to have a loud party in their airspace test. That's why they were scared. You'd be scared too. Okay, sure. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll see that there's actually a bigger biblical point here that's being made. You know, it's interesting that throughout the Old Testament, every time the glory of the Lord shined on people, you know what always, always, always happens? Every single person always freaks out. Like the shepherds here. Think about it. No human being in the Bible sees God's glorious light and goes, ah, warmth, peace, and serenity. No. Everyone freaks out. They hide, like Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. They cover their faces, like Moses did in Exodus 3. They say, turn off the light, like the Israelites did in Exodus chapter 19. And as we saw in our liturgy today, they say, woe is me, like Isaiah in chapter 6. They're filled with great fear, like the shepherds were here in Luke chapter 2. Always. And by the way, this is something we still sense a bit today, isn't this? Do you want to know why conversations about religion and about God almost always feel so uncomfortable? Hmm? You know why? Because it forces us to look up 
It forces us to look at something we're so good at ignoring. It forces us to peek into the glare of sovereign beauty. And sometimes it's light. Even the tiniest bit of it is too bright for us. Because it reminds us of just how far we fall short from all that is true, good, and beautiful. It's the kind of light that cuts through all of our attempts to hide who we really are. It sees through, oh my goodness, it sees through all of your religious activities. It sees through all of your moral attempts. It sees through your Sunday best. Are you tired of hypocrites looking so spiritual on Sundays but then live sinfully throughout the week? Don't worry, verse 9 is telling us God, God's light sees through all of their hypocrisy and guess what? It sees through all of ours as well. It's so like everyone else. We're scared. The shepherds were scared. It's the most terrifying thing to be reminded of, isn't it? The shepherds here were filled with great fear or in the Greek literally translates to megaphobia. But it was at this point of great fear where the angels said something that was perhaps as shocking as the light itself. They said, fear not. Fear not? How can I possibly not fear? This light has seen everything I've ever done. It's heard every thought I've ever had. It knows every desire of my heart. And you're telling me not to be afraid? Yes. How? Well, the angels continue, by beholding. Behold, they said in verse 10. Or in other words, look with eyes that truly see. Look at what? That unto you is born this day in the city of David. Not just another normal kid not just another moral teacher, not just another religious person, not just another powerful king, but a savior. A savior who in the beginning utilized evil to be born unto us and at the end will once again utilize evil to die for us. You remember what happened at the end of this child's life? The Pharisees and the Roman military exhausted all of their resources to stop him. They captured him. They made up lies about him. They tortured him. They even unjustly crucified him on a cross. But yet again, without knowing it, they ended up accomplishing his agenda for him. What agenda? His agenda to save us from our own sins by dying the death that we deserve on that wretched cross. We're the problem, verse 9 is saying. And if God were to directly come down with a sword to destroy the problem, that sword would be directed toward us. What we need isn't a God who will directly destroy evil, what we need is a God who will utilize evil in order to take the sword for us. 
That's why this child was born. That's the good news. The angels were declaring here, do you see it? They're asking, are you beholding? Because if you do, you will fear not. Tim Keller, a pastor, a preacher, one of my heroes, who died of cancer this year, he said this. He said, if you're scared of anything in life, you're not beholding. But if you behold, you will fear not. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that you, if you have the eyes to see who Jesus is, if you have the eyes to see God's hidden power amidst the mangers of life, then you can even stare death in the eye with a heart full of hope. One of our members, and I asked his permission before sharing this, is currently going through something similar, stage four cancer. And I was WhatsApping him this past month when things were at its worst, when he just got done going through multiple procedures that didn't work, nothing worked. And let me read to you what he wrote to me. He said this, pray for me, Tez, so that I can contribute more to God who has been so merciful and loving to me. Some of you know this person. You know why he can say that? Because he had eyes that saw. Do you? Do you have eyes that see? He has eyes that sees God's hidden power amidst his trouble. He has eyes that sees the divine savior who came in swaddled glory. And everything he saw made him treasure God even through stage four cancer. Which leads to our last point, a newfound treasure. So, verse 15, after the shepherds heard the good news, heard the gospel, they went looking for this kid that the angel was talking about. And when they found him, they told everyone around the manger who the child was, his identity, he's God. And verse 18 says that all the people who heard this gospel around the manger wondered, or in other words, they were awestruck by the news. Now, you gotta understand, this is another big theme in the gospels. Over and over and over again in the four gospels, especially in the gospel of Matthew, the writers tell us that the people who would often marvel at Jesus or who would often wonder at Jesus or be awestruck by Jesus, these people would be the ones that would end up denying Jesus at the end. In the Gospel of Matthew, for example, the same people who cried Hosanna as Jesus entered Jerusalem were also the same people who cried crucify him a few days later. So the people who wondered here at the gospel, at the good news, were not necessarily people who truly believed in the gospel. Most likely they weren't. What, what we're seeing here is that to be amazed on Sundays doesn't necessarily prove you have faith. Okay, so if the crowd's wowness wasn't proof of faith, then what was proof of faith? Mary's reaction was. Luke's trying to show us here at the end of the passage, there's a contrast between the crowd's wonder and the heart of Mary. Look at verses 18 and 19 again with me. After the shepherds preached the gospel, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told him, but, verse 19, starkly states, you see that? 
but Mary. See the contrast? Treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. What did Mary experience here that the crowd didn't? The gospel made Mary's heart ponder. It wowed the crowd, but it made Mary's heart ponder. Now, what does it mean to ponder? In the Greek, to ponder or sumbulosa means to interpret or reinterpret everything in your life. You think about your life and you rethink it based on a piece of truth or a piece of data that you find to be authoritative. It makes you think about your life through the lenses of this piece of data. It makes you, makes you kind of make sense of it as a whole. It's like when someone hasn't WhatsApped you back for two weeks and you get insecure, but then you learn that, oh, this person has been out of the country for two weeks and they use a different number. And then you go, oh. You see, there's a piece of data that reinterprets your experience. Or another example is when your friend avoids you on your birthday and you're like, why? Are they upset at me? But then later you learn that this whole time they avoided you because they're planning a big surprise party for you. And you go, oh, okay. That's a piece of data that helps reinterpret your experiences. Mary heard the gospel and it became a piece of data that made her reinterpret everything that's happened to her. This is proof that you have eyes that see. You lose something irreplaceable. You're confused of why God would allow you to go through this thing that's really hard. You're suffering. You see other families happy in Christmas, but yours isn't. You see worse things happen, like stage four cancer. If you have eyes that see, Luke is saying that your gaze somehow will be lifted up to the manger and then to Calvary. And it'll remind you that God's hidden power is still at work, even now. Or maybe you could put it this way. When the gospel no longer needs proof, but rather becomes proof for you, when the gospel no longer needs proof, but it becomes proof for you. That's when you know you have eyes that see. And like the shepherds in verse 20, you will be able to praise and glorify God regardless of your earthly circumstances. Their earthly status didn't change. They were still the lowest in the ladder, weren't they? They were shepherds. They didn't get a promotion Their sheep investment didn't suddenly exponentially grow. They're still shepherds, but they went home praising and worshiping and glorifying God as changed people. Why? What happened? Because they saw. They saw who this child really was. So let's summarize everything here. Here's God's Christmas question for us through the birth of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. He's asking us this. Look, if I've used evil in the past to come and die for you, why would you think that I'm using evil now to harm you? 
if I've used evil in the past to come and die for you, why in the world would you assume that I'm using evil now to harm you? Are there lingering pains in your life? God's saying here, of course there are. But if in the gospel, you've seen me use them to pave a way toward your good 2,000 years ago, then what do you think I'm using it for now? Your demise? No. He who did not spare his own son, will he not with all things give us our good? That's the message for those of you who already see. But there may be some of you here today who might be in a different part of the journey. You may be here today and you're not Christians at all. Or you might have always thought that you're a Christian, that you're born again. But after studying this passage, you find yourself relating more with a wowed crowd than with pondering Mary. Meaning, you've been going to church your whole life. You've been genuinely wowed by many sermons. You've been wowed by many worship services. You've been wowed by different Christian leaders and preachers. But the gospel has never really planted itself in your heart. It has never became the main piece of data in which you interpret your whole life through. You haven't felt changed by it. You don't feel like it's made you treasure God. I mean, yeah, you treasure God when you're problem-free, maybe. But when things get hard, you don't, you don't see glimpses of his hidden power in the gospel. Instead, you're cursing him for his lack of direct power. If that's you, friends, don't be discouraged. Don't panic. Don't hide from God's light. Although, yes, right now, it might be revealing more than what you want to see. This is where it all starts for, for all of us. Me, you, what does the hymn say? It was grace that taught my heart to what? To fear. That's where it starts for everyone. And then it was grace, my fears relieved. It starts with fear. It starts with admitting that we're the problem. Then by grace, behold this child, would you, with eyes that see, that your fears may be relieved. I hope you would. Let's pray. Father, grant them eyes to see a picture that my sermon could never paint, a beauty that my words could never describe, and a light that only your glory could display. And may that light lead them to the end of themselves so that they may run to this God who was swaddled in a manger and later covered by blood on a cross. May they see the truth of this gospel and may it somehow lift up their eyes to your hidden power amidst their darkest nights and change them, transform them, 
bring them not only joy, but make them joyful people with a joy that makes no sense to this world because it climbed down from heaven unto a cross for them. May you do this in Jesus' name, and in his name alone we pray. Amen.